lights on. Well, good morning. Thank you for inviting us. It's always a blessing to be back. Some of you know that I used to be behind this pulpit quite some time. And it's a great privilege and honor to do that again. And just kind of fill in when, when Brandon is out and just getting more shepherded so he can be even better shepherd for you. And we kind of play tag as far as what text to work with. And eventually we landed in Luke chapter 5. And that's where we're going to be. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Because this service is going to have sort of an Eastern European flavor. That's a... Just a quick 30-second update. That's, that's pretty much uh, the sort of situation we hope to go into, even though, uh, praise God, Belarus is so much more open to the gospel than Czech is. It's just wonderful. Um, just to have that many people come and to even be interested, uh, that's amazing. That's, that's something I'll, I'll pray for that would happen in Czech. In Czech, you can make invitations and nobody shows up and there is no... Uh, <laughs> It's just a lot of times very, very depressing. But we are in a process and we are almost at 60% for those of you interested. And if things go well and the churches that we are in contact with really come on board, we might be close to 90% of our support. And uh, we even started to look at places to, to live. So we can be there quite shortly. So let's look at the text this morning and then we'll pray. Verse 27, Luke chapter 5. After that, he, that's Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in the house, in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at a table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. God, we are... Never adequate enough, apart from your Holy Spirit, to come here to sing praises to you or to preach your word or even listen well. God, we know that it is not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth that we are sustained. And so I pray now as as we open your word that you give us the grace to hear. You give me the grace to speak clearly. And let your truth come forth so that you may continue to be worshipped in this place this morning. Be honored among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a terminal disease that's plaguing almost, well, it's plaguing all humankind from almost the beginning. Every human ever born has suffered 
and died as a result of this disease. disease. There are only few exceptions. It's passed on through DNA on, from generation to generation. The doctors try to manage it, but all they can do is cover up the symptoms for a certain amount of time. After a while, the symptoms eventually take over and you will die. It is so aggressive and it is indiscriminate. It takes young and old. It takes black and white. It takes rich or poor. But this disease is more powerful than you might think. It does not only destroy you in this life. It has the power to create a horrific suffering for all eternity. It far outweighs any suffering that we can even imagine in this world. And there's quite a bit of it we heard this morning. All have it, but not all admit that they do. Some refuse to accept the fact they have this disease and they die denying its reality in their life. The very death that they go through is a proof, yet they continue to fight against it. Now, you know what that is. Can anybody say what the disease is? Three-letter word. Exactly. It's a dark corruption of the soul that's been passed on to us from our ancestor Adam as a result of his disobedience and rebellion, direct rebellion against God. And it continues to destroy us and it continues to destroy this world. Some of you probably heard me talk about a lady that I met. And this is a conversation that I often have with a lot of atheists. This is not the only conversation that I had. It seems to be a reoccurring theme. And as I talked to this lady who had cancer and she got over cancer, I asked her, is this the way things ought to be in this world? Is this okay for there to be cancer and destruction and, and abuse of children and famines? And she says, no, there's something wrong with this world. And then I ask her, okay, then if you agree to that, what can fix it? Can issuing more laws prevent evil? Can better education prevent evil? Can maybe putting money up bend and prevent more evil? There might be some short-term effect in that. But you educate people and you get more educated crooks as well. You give people money and you find those who will find a way to get hold of the money to exploit the poor. And so ultimately you do not find a solution in the things that this world tries to do to take care of evil. And the lady realized that and she said, well, you know what? I think there is something wrong with us. There is something wrong in our hearts. And I said, that's right. And then I said, what can fix that? Or who can fix that? See, in our text this morning, it's a, it's a short text, is it not? A few verses. And we can go straight to, the pun, straight to the punchline. At the end, verse 32. But I think in order for us to see the death of our sinfulness and to see the death of Christ's great mission, I think we ought to go through it. It's almost like if you were told that you're sick and that you, once you got through the hospital, they put you under, doctor did a procedure, and now you're alive and well. Now, you would be appreciative of that, wouldn't you? I mean, it's great. I'm, I was sick. They fixed me up. 
But if I were to tell you you had an inoperable tumor, there is something so terribly wrong, you were so aggressive that it was going to kill you within, within weeks. And there was no hope for you. And then, amazingly enough, a surgeon shows up with, who with an unprecedented skill cut out the tumor. And now, as a result of his amazing work, you are alive and well. There will be a different sense about what just happened, wouldn't it? You would realize this, this is more than just taking care of some simple disease. This is amazing work. And so as we go through the text, I want us to kind of let, us, let the text lead us up to verse 32. And as we do that, I want us to observe a few things along the way. A few, few points that the text makes. First we find this. There is an invitation of sinners. Invitation of sinners. Now verse 27 is actually, as you study it, and you've studied through chapter 5, is, is almost a culmination of what's been going on in chapter 5. It's like the concentrated version of what you've been seeing in, in the previous verses. And so what do you find? First you find Jesus at the shore. And He's calling the disciples at the shore. And He calls particularly Peter. And, and the situation is very interesting. He, talks, he tells him to throw in the nets. And Peter is a little bit doubtful. And he said, okay, nevertheless, I'll throw the nets in. And the catch is so amazing that Peter at an instant realizes this guy is not ordinary. There is somebody greater in the boat with me that, that I can imagine. He realizes perhaps that this is a very holy man, that this is somebody unique from God. And what is his reaction? His reaction is something like Isaiah. I'm undone. He's faced with the holiness of God, that the holiness of Christ shines into his darkness and into the darkness of his soul. And he realizes that he is not fit to be in his presence. And his natural reaction is to, to escape. The natural reaction as he's faced with the holiness of Christ is to flee. But Jesus' solution is not for you to flee. His solution is for you to follow it's not that you scary from Him, but that you submit to Him. And so, Jesus deals with Peter's sin by saying, You leave all you done and follow Me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so we have this radical transformation of Peter. And next thing, we see a leper and a paralytic. And you know the story of these two guys. A leper comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus does the unimaginable. He actually touches the guy. That's against the, all the laws of uncleanness and cleanness in the Old Testament. He touches him and he heals him. And he tells him what? Go, show yourself to the priests according to the law. And then, don't tell anyone. Well, this guy might have even hearing problems. Jesus didn't heal because he didn't obey. And the news spread. And what happened is now you begin to have people and droves of people coming in to, to see Jesus and to be healed. And among those people also are the Pharisees. Because they soon heard about this guy, especially after this man came in who was healed of leprosy. As he came in, they wanted to check him out. Just like they did with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching in the, in, near the Jordan River. So they, they came out to see what he is about. So they came out to, 
to check out Jesus. See what sort he is, uh, what denomination he might be, and all sorts of things. Just figure out what is he about. And, and immediately, as uh, the story goes, as you know, he throws a theological a wrench in their system. Uh, because four guys, as they lower uh, a paralytic down, Jesus, instead of healing him, he actually forgives sins. And, and the Pharisees correctly recognize, you know, the authority to forgive sin belongs only to God. So how in the world can you say that unless you declare yourself to be God? And in their understanding of the Messiah or God Himself, Jesus just that did not fit the profile. But the rebuke comes in the sense of of healing. So Jesus backing up the fact that He is God and that He has the power to forgive sin. He does something that to the outward observation would be something that is actually harder than forgiveness of sin. See, if you say, I forgive you, it's easy. Nobody can check if that's really true. But Jesus says, just so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. And He does it. And so what the sense we get from this passage, and the passage is leading up to ours, is that Jesus is the hands-on kind of Savior. He comes among His people. And He touches those who would be deemed untouchable. He forgives those who might feel, seem unforgivable. And the question in our minds now begins to spring, and the minds of the Pharisees begins to spring is, how low will Jesus go? How far will His grace and compassion reach? Can it reach even the sickest sinners? And then we read about Levi. He said, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector. So Jesus is walking and he noticed tax collector. This is not a casual glance. The, the word there suggests that he gazed at him. He intentionally looked at Levi. And he's staring him down. Now, who is Levi? Levi, we know him by another name, Matthew. He's one of the writers of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So he's, this is one of his names, Levi. And he's sitting there. But Levi, and, or Matthew, who is he? He is one of the lowest of the low. He's a tax collector. In the minds of the people back then, tax collectors were extortionists. They were traitors to their own country. They took people from their, they took money from their own people and handed it over to Gentiles, Romans. They were hated. They were avoided. They were despised, ostracized. They were the outcast. And it is no wonder that you often find them listed along with the prostitutes. And so this man. Levi is sitting at the booth and Jesus is gazing at him. And you just wonder, what is his mindset? What is Levi thinking as he sees this religious leader coming by and looking at him? Was he thinking, great, another lecture on the sinful wickedness of tax collectors is coming. I'm going to be mocked and pointed at, possibly spit, spit at. Or maybe he's thinking, oh, this, this is that Jesus that I heard about. I heard he's, he's loving. I heard that He's compassionate. Now, we don't know what he's thinking. But we know this. 
Levi heard some of the sweetest words that a sinner can ever hear from a Savior. What is it? Look at it, church. Follow me. The greatest words that you can hear as a needy sinner that is bent towards hell is to have Christ open your eyes and say, follow me. Follow after me. Come, have your sins forgiven. Come and be redeemed. Have you eternal life. And that's what he tells Levi. Come and follow me. And just like Peter, Levi leaves everything that he was identified by. His trade. Just like in Peter's case, Jesus confronts sin by inviting the men to follow Him. To come to Him. Come ye sinners. He just sang that this morning. And so He's inviting Levi to follow Him. And so Levi, just like Peter, leaves everything. He doesn't scale back to a part-time position at a tax booth. He quits full-time and goes and follows Christ. Here's a picture of a discipleship for us. There are so many themes that you can always trace throughout Scripture, but here is one of discipleship. Because what's happening, there is a total surrender. There is a total commitment by Levi, and just like Peter. Levi left his source of income to follow Christ. Later on, Luke picks up on it in chapter 9 when Jesus calls people to follow Him. And in discipleship, in following Christ, there are no buts. But there is a man, Jesus says, follow me. And He says, I will, but first, but first, let me go and say bye to those at home. And Jesus says, no one who lays hand on a plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. He expects a full commitment. There is a full unwavering commitment to go after Christ. And the word there actually, to, when we read that, he left everything behind and got up and to follow him. That word is actually kind of a present continuous idea. It's not just he got up and followed Jesus. He got up and his life became that of following Christ. It became a lifestyle. Now, as you imagine, any sinner that truly finds Christ, as J.C. Rao puts it, never goes to heaven alone. And so as a result, Levi throws a party. And look at his party. This is a great party. You got all the religious leaders there, right? You got all the, you got all the high-profile politicians, all the greatest cream-of-the-crop culture, right? No, you don't have those guys. They're outside whining and complaining about it. He is inside with all his friends. Just like when you and I were converted. Uh, At least in my case, everybody that you knew was lost. You didn't have any Christian friends except those they, they told you about Christ. And so, as Levi becomes a follower of Christ, he immediately becomes what? A fisherman. And now he's fishing. And he's inviting all these people who would never even dream of being in the same room and in the presence of a teacher, somebody like Jesus. And so they come. And as this happened, as these guys, you know, and they are reclining at a table, you, look, you can look at that. This is not just kind of, let's get together, woof the meal and, and go on. They are reclining, which means 
it's going to be a good long party. If you lay down to, to eat, if you repose to eat, it's not going to be a quick. It's going to be more like a four-hour golden corral trip. All right? And so he's reclining with them. And, and guess who, who is there? Not, I don't think not directly in the room because just by the fact what they say, but the Pharisees. The Pharisees, either they caught up later with him or they heard about it and they're outside complaining. And they're saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, who are they saying it to? It's also pretty interesting. They send it to the disciples, which also tells us something about what the disciples are up to now. They are following Christ. They are following the example of their, of their master by being among sinners themselves. And now I think they're also saying to the disciples because they're too, too cowardly to say to Jesus. Sort of like when people complain about your kids because they really want to complain about you. Right? And so they talk to the disciples and they say, why do you, why do you drink and eat with sinners? Which implies we'd never do anything like that. That's just shameful. And interestingly enough, the word there is the word grumble. And if you look it up in the Old Testament, it's the same word that the Jews are described with as they've been led out of Egypt. Here they have Media the Moses who is leading them out of slavery to sin. And what do they do about it? They grumble. And instantly enough, he, we, right here we have Jesus who is leading people out of the slavery of sin. And the same sort of ungrateful spirit is there as these men, just like the Israelites long time ago, grumble that there is someone who is leading sinners out. And so what we begin to see here, not only the invitation of sinners, but we also begin to see indictment of self-righteous. See, as they question Him, they have a problem with His holy teacher associating Himself with these defiled beings. That ought not to be. They somehow perhaps think that Jesus, by being with these sinners, is defiled Himself or that He is maybe condoning their sin. But as we have seen over and over and over, the way Jesus confronts sin is as a doctor confronting a disease. Not as a patient. He comes and heals the sick. He comes and forgives sins. Jesus is plunging among the broken people to, to lift them up. To bring restoration. The way Jesus goes about searching the disciples is by bringing them into His flock, by forgiving their sins, by seeking out those sinners. But this is not the way the Pharisees go about it. How would Pharisees go about looking for disciples? We might look at Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He talks about, hey, I'm, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on a day, tribe of Benjamin. They're looking for the cream of the crop. If you, had a, if you had a Pharisee today, he'd be going to Oxford or Cambridge. He'd be going up to Harvard or Yale. He'd be going to the nice parts of the neighborhood because that's where all the nice people are. It would never occur to them to go to a brothel or prison or maybe the bad parts of the town. 
See, Jesus demolishes that sort of religious status quo there. And He actually goes to the place where Pharisees would never go look for a disciple. He goes to a tax booth. And so what you begin to see as we hear the Pharisees and as we see Jesus, what we begin to see is this rift. And it's a rift between Christ and and the Pharisees. And what we begin to really see is the what happens where you have a gospel and then you have a religion of self-righteousness. The self-righteous hypocrisy is revealed, especially when you look in verse 39, 31. Jesus answered, said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. There's so many things that Jesus teaches us in this analogy. But if you step back from the text and begin to think about who Pharisees were, and you start searching the Gospel, you realize, until the time that Christ came, who was supposed to be the spiritual doctor of the culture? The Pharisees. They were the ones who were supposed to be the spiritual healers, the doctors of the culture. They were the ones who sat in Moses' seat, as Jesus put it. They were supposed to be guides. But they didn't act like doctors. They acted more like a hazmat unit. They put on suits. They covered themselves as much as they could to to avoid any sin. And you read in Mark 7, when they would come from a market where they presumably met so many unclean people, what would they do? They would just go through this tedious washing ritual because they wanted to be clean. They would segregate themselves in the name of self-earned purity, forsaking the very heart of God which is full of mercy and compassion. See, because there's a tragedy in this self-righteousness. Because as soon as you think you are self-righteous, that you have earned it yourself, you begin to look at others in a completely different way. You will never have compassion. And you see that well illustrated again in the book of Luke. Just a few chapters later, we read about the Good Samaritan. A Pharisee or, or a lawyer who tries to justify himself about love for the neighbor. And what do we get a picture of? We get a picture of, of a man who is in need of mercy, who is beat up by robbers. And priests go by. And what does he do? Does a belt line around him. And what does the Levi do? Belt line around him. They didn't want to be polluted They were too righteous. I do hope that the company that Jesus keeps does not offend you. Now this brings us to the culmination point. We see that Jesus came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. We've seen that there's the invitation to to sinners, there's the indictment of those who are self-righteous, and it culminates with Jesus just plainly giving us why He came. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, first we have to figure out what does Jesus mean? He didn't come to call righteous. 
Is he suggesting perhaps there are some righteous people out there who truly do not need to come to him? I think we have just seen that this is far from truth. The rest of the scripture gives us great testimony about how unrighteous we are all. Whether it's Romans chapter 3, where it says there's none righteous, or where we find in Isaiah all the righteousness, all the best that we can do is as filthy rags. There is no doubt that there are no righteous people in this world. And so when Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, he's using irony. Directed at those self-righteous Pharisees. In one breath, Jesus is stretching out a hand of grace and mercy to those who see their need for Him, while at the same time, He is issuing indictment on those who think they are righteous enough. Jesus' mission is to call sinners to repentance. He's calling them to turn from their sins to follow hard after Him, to make a turn in their life. And so, if the tax collector is sick with sin, does he not need a doctor? Does he not need to repent? Does he not need to trust the grace of God to redeem him, to wash his sin away? To rescue him? What about your neighbor? If your neighbor is sick with sin, does he not need a doctor? Does he not need to repent? What, if the peop- what about the people in this city? They're sick with sin. Do they not need a doctor? See, this invitation makes sense only to those who understand They are wretched sinners. Those who deem themselves righteous enough will never understand why would Jesus come and heal. There is nothing wrong with me. And that was the greatest hypocrisy and just scary idea that you find about the Pharisees. Because you are actually more dangerous when you are sick and you don't know it. And that's what exactly happened to the Pharisees. And you read it in Matthew 23 when Jesus says, "You, you Pharisees. You go, you travel half of the world to find one convert, and then what do you do with him? You make him as twice the son of hell than you yourself. And so that's, that's what happens when you or I do not recognize the sinfulness of sin and our own sinfulness and go about thinking we are good enough. We carry the deadly disease and spread it. But a salvation invitation from Christ is to those who see their need for Him. I don't think Levi had to be reminded about his sinfulness. I think his life constituted of just him being denigrated for who he was. He, his wickedness was rubbed in his face daily. And so when Christ comes in His mercy and says, follow me, there was nothing more freeing and desirable than to have the Savior invite you to salvation. And in this whole idea of inviting the right, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, what we find is a great irony. And again, Luke, I think he just runs with this theme on and on. We see in Luke 18, remember the story of tax collector and a Pharisee? And what is the point of the story? 
The point of the story is to help us to see that those who think themselves righteous, they're really not. But those who come and beg God for mercy, like the sinner who was, sitting, who was standing there beating his chest not, chest, not even daring to look up towards heaven, while the Pharisee was up front boasting about his righteousness. There's a great irony because the, the man, the Pharisee, went home thinking he was healthy, but he was sick. But the, the man, the tax collector who went home thinking he was sick, actually was healthy. Because in God's economy, every human is sick. The only difference is there are some who know it, and there are some who don't. One of the greatest dangers that happens in growing up in a church or even in the South is that we are often so blinded to our own sickness. The other folks are sick, but we've got it all together. We've got it figured out. But it true is that truth is that man without Christ is sick, though he might look healthy. But a man who has Christ has been healed, even though he might feel sick. See, man without Christ may love his family and want to do the best for them, but he can never give them the best. Because Christ is the best and He doesn't have Christ. And so He cannot give what He does not have. And so He might look healthy, but the truth is He is sick. Man can pour out his life to help the poor, the underprivileged, the oppressed. But he can never alleviate the greatest suffering of hell because he doesn't have Christ. And so he might appear noble and healthy, but the truth is he is sick. Man can come to church to fulfill his religious duties to God and to man, but without Christ, he is only heaping up a condemnation for more acts of self-righteousness which in fact deny the work of Christ on the cross. To be truly righteous means that you do not trust yourself, but the righteousness that God provides because He is the one who justifies the ungodly. To be righteous does not mean you boastfully stand on a foundation that you yourself build, but you are graciously embracing the foundation that God has built for you on the rock of righteousness, Jesus Christ. And to be truly righteous is to file a spiritual bankruptcy, trusting that Jesus will take care of all of your debt, because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus came and His mission was to call sinners to repentance. What a mighty Savior we have. One who condescends, who comes to us in our weakness and He says, follow me. And we as a church, His disciples, what a great privilege to follow the example of our Savior and follow after Him in reaching deep, and far to those who are hurt and to those who need the Savior. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful as a people that You have shown us our sinfulness, that You have helped us to see that we are like Levi in a tax booth, just crushed under the weight of sin and helpless to, to get rid of it. And You came and you did the most amazing thing. You did make us your slaves 
you didn't make us your hard work hard workers you made us your children you invited us to your fellowship you redeemed us you allowed us to know you and the joy that it is to have you god we thank you may we continue to reflect on the amazing mission that you have done as you call the sinners to repentance and one that you've given us as you send us out to our neighbors, to our city, to this nation, to all around the world, to reach and to call the sinners to repentance. We thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.